well, here's the metaphor. We spend time, spend, that is, you know, or you save time. These are, these are monetary words. Hello, and welcome to The Not So New Normal, a podcast where we interrogate the biggest issues in the world of work. We'll look back at history and wonder, when have we asked these questions before? I'm your host, Catherine Swindles, and this week we're going to be discussing the workday. Where does the modern 9-to-5, 40-hour workweek come from? Does it really make us our most productive? And does it give us room for life beyond our jobs? How many of us spend our time at work not working? When I worked in a pub, I'd take conveniently long walks down to the cellar under the guise of stocking up, or disappear to search for limes. In an office and working from home, it's even worse, constantly checking my phone and making cups of tea while the hours slip by. But what's frustrating is that in-work leisure time isn't relaxing. If I can get my whole workday done within six hours, and in essence, I do, I would so much rather work really hard for that time than take the rest of the day off. But we don't have that freedom. If I skipped out of work two hours early, I'd be disciplined, or worse, get a pay cut. But wait, there is a place that tried something like this. We're heading to a city called Battle Creek in Michigan, and a company you might have heard of. Under tasty flavouring, then pour a bowl of Kellogg-Gainan, in the in the early 20th century, Kellogg's, the company that bring you your favourite cornflakes, was thriving as the ready-to-eat cereal market expanded. But when the Great Depression hit, the Kellogg's factory in Battle Creek made a radical decision. They wanted to keep more people in employment, so they shortened their workday, creating four six-hour shifts. The shorter shifts had to appeal to the workers' sense of camaraderie to make this work-sharing programme a success. And to sweeten the deal... Kellogg's also boosted wages 12.5% so that workers only lost one hour of pay for the two hours cut. So what happened? More opportunities for family, for creativity, woodworking, those things that are spiritual, um, a life outside of working and consuming. That vision was the most important part of, uh, of the six hour day, I'm convinced. That's Benjamin Klein Honeycutt, historian at the University of Iowa and author of the book Kellogg's Six-Hour Day. He says the positive effects were immediate. People got to spend more time on leisure and with their families, and Kellogg's was able to employ more people. But one surprising outcome, after just two years, productivity went up so much that the factory increased pay again. Uh, At the end of two years, in 1932, uh, the company raised uh, hourly wages enough so Uh, that the workers were were making as much under six hours as they were at eight. Uh, The the six-hour day paid for itself. This experiment lasted until the 1980s and has been touted as one of the successes of the work hours reduction movement. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's go back and try and figure out where this eight-hour-a-day obsession really began. The work day or the work week and year really was linked to the weather and to the cycle of crops and and so you would, you know, you would have furious bursts of work during the harvest season, uh, and then you'd have moments of idleness. That's Nelson Lichtenstein, a labor historian at the University of California, Santa Barbara. 
He says this seasonal task-based kind of work applied to all kinds of people, ship labourers, hired farm workers, and of course enslaved and indentured people. But the world of work was changing. The the rise of the factory and the rise of railroads. Railroads, of course, had to... <laughs> you have to have timetables because otherwise trains will crash or people will be waiting around. It introduced um, elements of time. The Industrial Revolution and mechanisation totally changes the way we think about work. Before that, the average worker might not even have regularly seen a clock. And the reason you had clock towers, and these are on churches as, as well as um, um, factories, was because uh, pocket watches and, and wristwatches didn't exist, they, or they're very expensive. So these clocks would just say, okay, you should get into work at this particular time. And as we say, time is money. It was a training mechanism for the working class. Okay, you don't just wait for the task to be finished. It's not like harvesting the, the crops, which may take three hours or six hours. No, you are, you are expected to show up at work at a given moment, and then you spend that time, and, you, and then you get money for it. You know, the wage relation per hour, per moment of, um, of, uh, of, of time. And these shifts could be 12 or 14 hours long for men, women, and children. So from the Industrial Revolution all the way to the early 20th century, reducing hours was one of the key arguments of the workers' rights movement. And in 1926, Ford Motor Company became one of the first companies in America to adopt a five-day, 40-hour week for workers, a structure that has persisted since. Many trade unions had argued for this 8-8-8 split, eight hours each for work, sleep, and as they called it, what we will. Honeycutt calls it, Time to live. The real foundation was uh, shorter hours, the actual reduction of working hours that um, gave life to and substance to this vision of, of, of a future, this American dream. This is the original American dream of time to live. Increasing wages, of course, that's a good thing. Gives us access to more of the good things of life. Shorter hours providing the time to enjoy those good things. Uh, that was the vision. <laughs> then how did we get from that vision to today, when many people are paid to work 40 hours, but with commuting, overtime, email and cell phones, are often on duty for 50 or 60 hours a week? Honeycutt, who spent his career dedicated to this question, says he honestly doesn't really know. But we do know what happened at Kellogg's. During the Second World War, they went back to eight-hour shifts because there were fewer workers. When the soldiers returned, they wanted to reinstate the six-hour day, but some of the other workers didn't agree. A division occurs. A division between uh, some of the old heads, some of the senior male workers want to keep eight hours so they will make more money, and um, the majority, 70-some percent, of workers who wanted to go back to normal, which for them was six hours a day. But it didn't last. The six-hour experiment started to crumble in the 1950s, although parts of the company did hold on to that shorter shift until the 80s. For Honeycutt, this marks a deciding moment in the fight between life and work. More and more, uh, that old vision of time to live was replaced by a new vision of work for itself. Work not as a means to an end, 
uh, work not as in preparation for life, but work is the center of life and the most important, important part of one's existence. That's new. It has everything to do with capitalism. There were people who held out against that mindset, particularly women. Among the women who hold out for the six-hour day, <clears throat> criticize the men who were putting forth this, this idea that work is the center of identity. Uh, who I am is my work, my job. Uh, and the women were saying, uh, work is important. My job is important. But it's not who I am. <laughs> but ultimately, the six-hour workday disappeared at Kellogg's. And the weird thing, Honeycutt says, is that when you ask people, well, men, about it now, they'll say they never wanted it at all. As work becomes an end in itself, leisure begins to be trivialized. One of the, the um, personnel directors that I talked to uh, that went, lived through all this stuff, he talk, I asked him about the six-hour day, and he, why do you want to study this? It's not important. It's silly. He said, it's priceless. Um, the only people who wanted it was a bunch of silly girls who held on to it like a puppy holds on to a root. So that's how the Kellogg's experiment ended. But what about the rest of us? Back to Professor Lichtenstein. The idea of shortening the work, day, like the six hours a day, you know, or, or it, seemed to, it seemed to evaporate. And, and, and frankly, that's a little bit... Um, mysterious to uh, to people like me or uh, why is that I mean you can give lots of well you know workers said well we got overtime hey let's make some more money and you know and and I'm happy to work 50 hours a week if I get if 10 of those hours are paid a time and a half and of course in many countries but especially the United States work is inextricably tied to social benefits when you do have your social um, benefits, retirement, health care, um, even unemployment insurance linked to the job. What it means from an employer's point of view is, well, it's, if it's cheaper to just keep the same number of workers and just have them work more time, you know, because we don't have to pay these, we don't have these new obligations. Even as technology has made us more flexible with our time and location as we work, the measurement of hours has become more and more ingrained. It's just another way to hold power over us. It's even worse in gig work, where you're only paid for the exact minutes you're on the clock. Or even in some sectors, like service and retail, hours become a form of discipline. It wasn't just that hours got longer, they got shorter in some ways. Um, all the whole retail world, so the standard work week at Walmart became 32 hours a week, okay? And if the management wanted to reward a worker, um, they would say, okay, we'll give you 34 or 36 or, or even 40 this, this week. Uh, oh, and the worker said, fine, great. Yeah, I, I need that. It wasn't no overtime, no overtime, right? Because you're up to 40. And furthermore, it gave management a, a really effective tool for disciplining the workforce. And no one was ever laid off in retail or restaurants or food. You just cut the hours until people quit. But the fact is, it doesn't always benefit the employer either. Over the past few months, we've seen more clearly than ever that when we're out from under our boss's eyes and able to set our own hours without it affecting our wages, 
we often find ourselves able to do all our work and more in half the time. Maybe that's because we're working at home and not pulled into water cooler gossip or endless meetings. But maybe it's because we're our own best boss. In many jobs, employers could have more productivity and have a happier workforce, but the way they structure and surveil, a lack of trust with their employees is standing in the way. One of the things about productivity is all workers know tricks to do the job faster. However, if you think that the enhanced work that you do is not going to gain you anything or, or even gain you any, any leisure, any time, you know, then you're going to not going to do that. You know, and that depends on, on the, the boss, whether they can observe this or not. So, I mean, there are millions of stories going back to the throughout the 20th century in factories or offices or whatnot about workers who know how to speed up, but choose not to do it. All workers know that hours don't necessarily equate to productivity, that in our modern working world, it's far more complex than that, that we aren't automatons and we will work at different paces and in different ways. And that's OK. So ask the question. Should our job define our world and our identity? Or can we pursue a happy and fulfilling life beyond what we do in the workday? And, if I could take you one step further, could we question, should our home and our health, access to the basic needs of life, be based on our so-called productivity at all? Massive thank you to Benjamin Honeycutt and Nelson Lichtenstein for chatting to me for this episode. Our music is Coming Home by Snowflake, licensed under Creative Commons. The Not So New Normal is written, hosted and produced by me, Catherine Swindles. Thanks for listening.